are in for something very interesting. Dr. Hatfield is with us today, Dr. Stephen Hatfield. He is dis he wrote a book. Uh, he's a virologist. He's a specialist. He's a public health consultant. Uh, he has master's degrees in, in biomedical science, uh, medical fellowship at Oxford, National Institute of Health, as well as uh, having studied Ebola virus and anthrax. He wrote a book called Three Seconds Until Midnight that chronicled uh, our deficiencies in terms of pandemic readiness. And little did he know that that was a prophetic book. If you want to uh, see where our deficiencies are, he predicted them ahead of time. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, he also was embroiled in a controversy back in 2001 when he was when we had these anthrax at attacks, and he was such a bio uh, bioweapons expert. They ended up accusing him of being the attacker, and he ended up uh, suing the government and settling uh, to a, something that brought him into the public sphere. Then uh, he, and amongst other things, um, he has trying to get all his stuff here that. Uh, the U.S. Army Institute for Infectious Diseases. He's got a ton of stuff at drstephenhatfield.com. I'm sure he'll be ready to share with us. But we're going to talk about that and the tremendous deficiencies in our pandemic readiness after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And of course, as always, we're here with Dr. Kelly Victory as well. She'll be in after the break to continue the conversation. But let's bring in Dr. Stephen Hatfield. Dr. Hey, Hatfield, thank you so much for being with us. We're great. Uh, I, there's so much to be discussed, but let me start with something that you have said, at least um, you've, you've sort of been thinking about, which is something you're calling the intentional destruction of the national pandemic plan. Was the plan yeah. adequate in the first place? And then what did we do to destroy it? The plan was a great start. It was done under George W. Bush. And it brought in the concept of social distancing until an effective drug therapy could be found. And later on, perhaps a vaccine. Remember, we can't make a vaccine against all infectious disease agents. 
there's only a handful that uh, that it's practical to do so. And uh, I was called into the executive office of the White House for a year in 2020. And, uh, and we just watched in disbelief how a handful of uh, senior federal employees intentionally sabotaged it. Starting with uh, the request was for, we had a drug called hydroxychloroquine, one of the safest drugs known to medicine on the FDA's own most dangerous drugs list, aspirin is ahead of it. Um, people have been taking it for, for uh, 50 years for various things. And remarkably, data coming out of South Korea, France, uh, Brazil, was showing the ability of this drug, if it's used quickly, early on an infection of controlling a, a COVID-19 outbreak. And all we needed, we, we, I was in the office of Peter Navarro, and I mean, within a week, I would say we had 62 million doses of hydroxychloroquine put into the national stockpile. Uh, the regular pharmaceutical distributors, Cardinal and the others, were going to sweep this out. And of course, our big problem city was the New York City mega region. And uh, this was all underway. It was working well. But we needed a, a investigational new drug authority. And instead of that, uh, Rick Bright at BARDA, the Biological um, Advanced Research and Development Authority, and Dr. Janet Woodcock uh, at CEDAR at the FDA, uh, she told Rick Bright, who's a PhD, that this is a very dangerous drug. We can't have this, and it was it'll cause widespread heart attacks and all sorts of stuff. And um, instead of an IND, we got an emergency use authorization, which limited it to hospitalized patients. The EUA actually said it's because these patients that are in hospital will see the most benefit from the drug. Well, it was the complete opposite. Uh, right. Hydroxychloroquine was able to stop them from progressing in their infection to where they had to be in hospital. And so, it just so went one of the, from there. One of the things I've been noticing about this pandemic is it, it follows line and verse the opioid pandemic. In other words, yeah. the, there, and, and, I, and if this is what I think it is, much like in the opioid pandemic, there were evangelists. As you said, there were a handful of federal officials that decided they were the hero, they were wearing the white hat, and to continue with the opioid sort of analogy, they were gonna sweep in and never allow any pain to be experienced by an American ever again, and it was the foe of opiophobia, the, the doctors that were afraid of opiates we had to crush. And they did, these evangelists, by taking over professional societies, taking over how journals, what journals, they really didn't do much to the journals, that just the articles that were being used to justify were just ridiculous. They were essentially letters to the editor. And they got the VA, the state medical societies, JACO, and eventually it was on. Doctors had to overprescribe. And of course, the drug companies then blew wind into the sales of that, like a cyclone, to do what they could to amplify the evangelists. Who are the evangelists and what were they thinking? 
Yeah, it's not just that. It's the same people involved. It was Janet Woodcock back in the opioids. She's being sued now. This year, uh, at the end of the year, last year, there was a lawsuit initiated by a conglomerate, if I'm not mistaken. There was another drug, I think it was called Propulsive, something like that. It was a uh, gastric emptying drug. It was causing a prolonged QT syndrome. And uh, 300 kids died. She wouldn't take it off the market. Hmm. So it, it, it's these same people that rocking up, same with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, this is not a good legacy to have in public health. It, it, there's got to be others because they need their, their uh, sort of minion, their, their, uh, you know, their, their uh, deputies. Yeah that have to go out in the various medical societies and hospitals and, and state medical organizations and public health organizations. And then of course there must've been policy or sort of, I don't know, something that, that gave the public health officials the hubris to overreach the way they did. And why, and the, the lack of risk reward analysis, is that part of the, the, the lack of the, 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 AM, go ahead. the AMA are out of the AMA have become out of control. Um, they used to represent what about 40% of the doctors a couple, what, 20 years ago. Now I think they're down to what, 15%. Mm. It, it, they've not done their duty. Um, and I mean, the evidence for hydroxychloroquine is overwhelming. Your listeners can go to the internet, type in c19study.com. And there's the results of half a million patients given hydroxychloroquine uh, by about 5,000 scientists in about 300 and I think 20 studies. Uh, the effect is overwhelming if you give it early. If you give it late, it doesn't do anything. But if you give it within the first you know seven days of onset of symptoms, uh, it's there's it doesn't have to be a randomized controlled clinical trial the effect is so overwhelming um you should get harvey reish on your program he's he's we had, a we had harvey a couple times Yale. harvey is a yeah. great guy and he's done this this nation right. a, a tremendous sense but but I, I really want to zero in on the public health excesses that that uh yeah maybe who talked about in your book i i that the you know the the behavior of our peers and the public health excesses were the most yeah. astonishing experiences of this pandemic. What, what can you say about yeah. that? Well, the CDC we know are broken. They're actually censoring and driving all these papers that were released by America's Legal First. Uh, they they're the ones that have been deplatforming doctors and uh, removing them from Twitter and this type of thing. Uh, the FDA has been broken for years. It's just now very, very open and obvious. They don't even care. Look at the new uh, Alzheimer's drug that uh, Dr. Woodcock's uh, successor tried to get through. I mean, it's a complete shambles. Uh, the NIH, parts of it are broken and just need to be repaired. Everything, the, the journals, the things that we've all trusted as doctors 
to guide our practice of medicine have all been overturned and they're now being proven wrong. I, I'm reading a, a little bit of the Google on the, the FDA commissioner and uh, she is getting in some trouble for the opioid crisis. She did preside over that. And there's lots of controversy. Uh, there's also, um, is she responsible for some of the more um, diligent committee members uh, resigning? They've sort of resigned quietly, but it looked rather uh, yeah, this problematic. Was, this was over a couple things. Um, the Alzheimer's drug and uh, the vaccination of children. Children are, are not a, uh, COVID-19 is not a, a major risk for them. It's, it's, if they get it, it's usually asymptomatic. They don't produce enough virus and secrete it into the environment to infect other children or adults. Uh, if they do have symptoms, that's for a day or two. Uh, there's no risk benefit for giving uh, any of the COVID-19 vaccines to children. Let's do this. Let's uh, take a quick break, and I will bring Dr. Victory in here. Uh, again, the book, let's put it up there, Caleb. Put it up the book, which is, there it is, Three Seconds Until Midnight, about the deficiencies in our pandemic uh, awareness. And uh, Dr. Hatfield did mention that the Bush administration had brought in this idea of, I'm not even sure they used the word social distancing, but they had the policy, they adopted the policy established by a high school student uh, around influenza pandemics uh, being uh, Im improved by localized sorts of quarantines of certain populations that where there are outbreaks. Uh, nowhere, at my understanding, in that Bush policy was their universal lockdown of all human beings no. throughout the land. That, that is no. that is something never, never contemplated. It would have been laughed out of the room. Yeah. And Absolutely. so how it came, do you know how it came to that? How it suddenly, yeah. were you there when yeah. those sort who decided that? Where yes. did that come from? I, uh, myself and my colleagues were in the middle of it. Uh, it, it came from Dr. Burks. That's what I figured. The plan. Yeah. We all agreed that a temporary short sort of flatten the curve thing till we could get our act together as a nation. Well, what, what, you know, we're talking two weeks at the most. We had the hydroxychloroquine flowing. It was going out. Doctors were using it. You feel bad. You come see your GP. You write your script. You go home. You quarantine at home. You go back to work in, within a week. And um, it just came out of nowhere. It came from Chairman I, Z. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that I think there's a email chains now documenting that it was his convincing or his people convincing the folks that mm. uh, Dr. Fauci sent to China that came back, yeah. and then and I had a suspicion that Burks was one of the evangelists, and then she became an evangelist and went around the country demanding that governors all lock their states down. And uh, you can just look happened, at the data and, on that. And she ignored in her book that was released like a few months ago, she still says hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. I mean, how out of touch can you be? Well, I, I don't want to get into that argument. Uh, and, and I know there was a lot of it prescribed at the beginning quietly until pharmacists stopped filling what doctors were asking uh, for, which was a, yeah. another weird 
weird stage in this whole thing. Right. Uh, but, but the fact that so many people were harmed by the yeah. policies that were, were indoctrinated and the fact that the virus just does what it does anyway. I mean, it just did that with all that yeah. stuff was, and it was sort of missing the point of what might've helped even, which was, you know, localized lockdown of quarantining sick people. Like we've always done throughout human history. Uh, we did that Absolutely. for a reason. So, all right, let's get Dr. Victory in here. We'll take a little break. We're here with Dr. Stephen Hatfield. The uh, drstephenhatfield.com is the website. We'll be right back. Genucil has so many products that Susan and I love. Their XV Moisturizer locks in moisture, making dry spots a thing of the past, which is especially great with the colder weather, of course. And with the immediate effects, too, you can see these results in as little as 12 hours. Guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's Vitamin C Serum, the new deep correcting serum with lactic acid that hydrates your skin and reduces fine lines while preventing future wrinkles from forming. Don't believe me? Listen to Susan. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of this New Year's promotion by going to GenuCell.com and getting 60% off now with a complimentary gift set when you subscribe to my favorite package at GenuCell.com Drew. All orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the season. Use code DREW at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash DREW, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil. Uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed. And we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. That That is indeed the topic for the day. Dr. Kelly Victory, have at it. Hi, Dr. Hatfield. Thanks so much for joining Hi, us. Really, really looking, really looking forward to this conversation. And I've got lots to ask you about. I am going to ultimately circle back to the hit job that was done on these repurposed drugs like hydroxychloroquine and yeah. ivermectin, uh, because I think it's such a critical piece of this uh, story that we've all lived through for three years. And I want to talk about the egregious breaches of protocol, regulatory protocol when it comes to the vaccines. But before I do that, yeah. I want to take a, a quick dive into your expertise as a bioweapons expert, and specifically uh, as that might apply to understanding of the origins of this uh, virus. I was out a very, very vocal early on in the pandemic. It was the second or third week of February of 2020 when I first said on social media that I believed that this likely uh, emanated from a laboratory and was not naturally occurring. Yeah. And I said that on the basis of, of my understanding of the genetic code, the, the actual uh, genetics mm -hmm. of it, the DNA sequencing, if you will, uh, and that it had some telltale fingerprints in my estimation of something that had been cut and pasted, something that had been spliced, uh, not a naturally occurring viral se or a genomic sequence. So talk a little bit about that and, and whether or not you believe it, you know, where you think it came from and whether you think it was purposeful or, and uh, your, your insights into that. Well, when the SARS-1 virus broke out, I was quite a good student of that. And that was a natural outbreak. It came from horseshoe bats in a wet market to palm silvet cats, which are a delicacy in Asia and from there into humans. So I assumed that it, it was something like this. Remember the first outbreak in China that China admitted to was this Wuhan seafood market. Right. Well, this isn't the case. Uh, Dr. Bloom uh, was able to, just before the Ch Chinese announced uh, a pathogen of, path of uh, pandemic significance, they wiped their databases off the internet for the coronavirus sequences they had. Dr. Bloom was able to recover this off the cloud. And the viruses that were circulating in Wuhan weren't the ones that were in the seafood market. And from that time on, uh, China has obstructed any sort of investigation. Yes, and it will. And also we have, if, I, if I'm uh, not mistaken, a pretty clear email traffic between Anthony Fauci uh, and Peter Daszak from Eagle Health Alliance yep. that shows uh, very clearly that after uh, Obama put a the moratorium on gain-of-function research um, that had been done in this country and was being done at multiple scientific labs, academic institutions, including my alma mater, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, they'd been doing it there. President Obama put a moratorium, I think rightly so, 
on gain-of-function research. And so Anthony Fauci yeah. decided to funnel uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars through Eco Health Alliance over to Wuhan so that they could continue. It, was, uh, it wasn't to start gain-of-function research. It was to continue research that had been ongoing, uh, had been precedent uh, already here in the United States. Uh, and he is, you know, Anthony Fauci has certainly obfuscated and, and uh, as far as I could tell, perjured himself when he's answering questions about, um, and Kelly, about and Kelly, if I could, if I could pile on a little bit further, I, I interviewed Lee Meng Yan about two weeks ago and she's a controversial figure, but it was uh, chilling to hear her description of what was happening because this is a viral backbone that she was aware of that she was using to build viruses for the military at the time. I don't want to overstate right. what she said, but when you listen to that interview, she was there on the ground working with these viruses and knew the players, knew exactly what was going on as multiple informants. And she sort of, this is like, you know, there's begs no alternative in her mind, but please go ahead. No, and that's exactly, uh, Drew, where I wanted to go with Dr. Hatfield. I wanted to get your input, Dr. Hatfield. Do you we, have concerns about this being a bioweapon? We knew in 2014 of the SHO14 strain that came out of the Mojang mine in China. Uh, it had made Nature magazine. Uh, it was able to directly infect uh, human cells without, you know, with fairly good specificity. What we saw in the sequences and of the virus that the Chinese gave us eventually was a virus that was already fully adapted to man. In fact, it doesn't even like to grow in bats. Right. Uh, there, there, we never found a host. If you make a column and you put on this side all the things that say it came from a lab and you put on this side all the things that says it was natural mm -hmm. there's nothing that says it's natural <laughs> right and there's everything that says it came from a lab okay all right so then so so i agree with you i think it clearly was was lab manipulated uh and i think that yeah. that's that the evidence are irrefutable i think uh, at this point um Talk, was yeah. it a bioweapon? Was it purposefully, in your mind, weaponized? I haven't seen any stability studies. You know, having the agent is one thing, but normally you have to add the aerosol attack is the, the way this is done. Normally, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of chemicals you have to add. The recipe is different for each virus but it provides aerosol stability. Otherwise, these things decay at a very high rate. Um, immaterial. China violated the international health regulations. They delay. They're required to inform the WHO within 24 hours if they see a pathogen that has pandemic potential. And they delayed, delayed, delayed. They talked the uh, WHO director into delaying saying that it was person to person when they knew back in November this was person to person transmissible. Right. So, and in the meantime, they bought up the world's PPE, personal protective right. equipment, masks, everything. Right. So when it came over here, there's, there's none here for us. We right. gave a bunch of stuff to China. Right. 
Right. So at a minimum, it was abject incompetence, whether or not it was released purposefully or not is unclear, but uh, they certainly were, uh, as you said, breached the protocols, uh, the things that they were required to divulge, and they have done nothing to facilitate the investigation of this, including turning over blood samples uh, and all of the data that they had in those labs. So now you go to, here you are, you're in the White House, you're very familiar with the National Pandemic Response Plan. Let's talk about the ways in which clearly, as you said, the players, you rattled off the names of the top few, you know, uh, Woodcock and Bright and others, Burks, uh, who were absolutely undermining and doing everything they could to, to sabotage the plan. Talk about some of the things that you saw specifically happening that they were doing um, that breached what would have been the standard policy or standard protocol uh, to employ during a pandemic. Well, first of all, for for the one drug that we mentioned earlier, uh, they started the ridiculous notion that it was causing um, right. uh, heart problems. Right now, before the drug even came out, we were doctors were seeing patients with COVID, pulmonary involvement, lung involvement, that they'd get through it and they'd die of heart failure. The virus was attacking its heart, right. and nobody is that stupid at the FDA <laughs> to call for a withdrawal of an EUA for a drug that was working. And if you look at the letter from their uh, from Rear Admiral Hinton, who happens to be a um, former Air Force nurse with no degree in hard sciences, but suddenly the FDA scientist, uh, chief scientist, it, it just didn't make sense. The, 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 the things were happening that, uh, look, Fauci dumped this stuff to make way for remdesivir and the vaccines. Yes. It was intentional. Nobody's that stupid. The papers, Pete Navarro and he had a serious argument in the Situation Room. And uh, the evidence had built up to the point where it was overwhelming. It didn't have to be randomized clinical trials. The evidence, the the benefit was so great, uh, randomization wouldn't, wouldn't account for it the results that we were seeing. And uh, they had a fight in the Situation Room. And Peter had all the papers with him and Fauci just wouldn't even look at it. Wouldn't even look at it. This is not the job, this is not the behavior of a man whose job is to find the best solutions for the country and the president. Okay, It, it, it was intentional. There's right. So we so we lived through this therapeutic nihilism uh, that where they absolutely yeah. had to deny that we had um, most uh, highly effective, readily available, safe in dirt cheap drugs, yeah. uh, not only hydroxychloroquine, but also ivermectin uh, and then subsequently yeah. fluvoxamine and steroids and vitamin D and zinc and all the rest of them. They had to yeah. absolutely put the kibosh on those in order to get the emergency use authorization for the vaccine, because that EUA is predicated on there not being any other I, I have a question. I have a question about that. Absolutely. Is it Absolutely. I, I, I get that. We, we we have come upon that theory. Would that theory 
or with that phenomenon of going for the EUA and making sure there's no other alternative treatments, why not, why not encourage physicians to practice medicine? Now, in other words, not get an EUA yeah. and not get a, and just go, Hey, here's some thing, here's some papers, some things we we've seen worked. And, and by the way, let me educate you. Now we have monoclonal antibodies. Let me educate you about those and how yeah. to get through this illness when you get it. I never, ever saw public health talk about how to no. deal with the illness in the entire pandemic. And God knows how many lives could have been saved with that. I, I went out, I, the, uh, for me, the monoclonal antibodies kept me out of the hospital. I had, I had a bad no. alpha or delta and I, and I kept going down, down. And the MCA just turned it around, right? Right within an hour, it was crazy. And, yeah. and um, but I, I thought, my God, no one is talking about this. And then when I went out and talked about it, people went, oh, you're special. You can afford it. No, the government had already bought it all and it was sitting on a shelf. And because there was no campaign to help in, instead, doctors were scared, frankly, shitless to practice medicine. And we're just waiting for yeah. orders from on high. And th that would yes. let's go back to my original question. This is it was so disturbing to me. I get upset when I think about that whole chapter that we all lived through. But is it the case that if they'd gone out with some sort of educational campaign and encouraged doctors to improvise and practice medicine as they always did, would that have undermined their EUA for remdesivir and vaccines? Absolutely. The first yeah. study of remdesivir, oh. I saw okay. it. Okay. All right. It, it was toxic. And then you let the company do its own studies? No. And then the middle, the second study that was done, a big majority of these patients were already on hydroxychloroquine, which can right. be retained in the body for days. So you were looking at two drugs, not one. And my suspicion is that the patients that did marginally better had residual hydroxychloroquine in their bodies. Then the third, the third trial wasn't even randomized clinical trial that Dr. Fauci so insists on. It, it was a complete shambles. Fauci had ordered $1.2 billion worth of remdesivir even before the studies were done. Right. Of government funding. Right. So it, it was. It's what was going on in his head? What, what was he thinking? What, what do you think? Was, what, I want to know. I. This is a man that I looked looked toward for many years through my career, particularly in the HIV epidemic. We all did. What happened? Gilead couldn't even make the drug. Okay, we had to we had to bring in chemists to figure out how to make the stuff because it was being made in China, and then they were going to fight and just take the patent and make it for themselves. There had to be money involved somewhere. Nobody makes these decisions in that level of authority unless there's there's something for them. So NIH, uh, pharmacy, I don't know. But um, it was insane. Well, it, let's talk about the Talking, speaking of conflicts of interest, and they are, you could write a book just on that with regard to this pandemic. Exactly. Um, let's exactly. talk a little bit about the conflict of interest uh, in the CDC owning parts of uh, patents for vaccines. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's oh, a, it's another thing. It's in an NIH oh, contract. Yeah. You know, they find something and patent it, they, they get money from it. 
Right. Um, right. We need to overhaul the. These were problems we never ever foresaw in pandemic planning that our own systems would go haywire. What we need to do is bring back, like, the Office of Technology Assessment, which would have been Congress's arm for scientific accuracy. Um, uh, right now, the money, the greed, were additive. They equaled death. This never should have, never should have happened. We need to bring back the Office of Technology Assessment as the scientific watchdog for Congress because they had nothing. Newt Gingrich got rid of this back in the 90s and no one ever brought the organization back. It was over 100. Whatever, they would bring in outside scientists uh, to answer any particular problem that questions that Congress might have. And it kept the nonsense out of the decisions. Uh, this wasn't the COVID-19 task force where people just going off and doing their own thing. Dr. Burke's on lockdowns, Dr. Fauci on remdesivir. You get rid of hydroxychloroquine, but we don't have any remdesivir. Right. And thousands of people right. died because there was nothing. They were told, go home until you turn blue, you know? Right. It seems that what we need, that the, the tentacles of big pharma uh, run oh. into absolutely every one of these things. So it, big pharma is involved in the CDC and the FDA. Yep. And we know yep. now that they are involved in big tech and they clearly yep. own the mainstream media. You know, you watch any, you know, any particular slot, uh, whether it's on Fox News or MSNBC and, you know, Brought to you by Pfizer. So when big pharma owns, yes, when when the when big pharma uh, owns all of it, it's hard for these you know any organization to stay really independent. They certainly own uh, the medical journals. We know that the veracity of the data that's being published and the quality of the studies is totally in question because of big pharma's uh, control over those over those journals. So yeah. talk, let's move and talk about um, everybody's favorite topic, certainly mine recently, which is the vaccines. And uh, I wanna talk about really, I, I think people think I'm exaggerating when I talk about paucity of safety data uh, and th- things of that sort. Actual, you know, no studies done, no diligence, no proof of uh, safety and efficacy. We were we were promised safe and effective, and what we got was you know sudden and unexpected. Um, so well, uh, let's let, let's talk talk a little bit about the breaches of standard protocol with regard to the vaccine manufacturer. Even simpler, let's look at what the scientific data shows um, and look at what the propaganda did. We were promised a vaccine that would stop us from getting sick. There was never any evidence that it would prevent infections. So when that got resolved and became apparent, then suddenly take the vaccines and you won't get severe illness. And now we're to the stage where, no, that's not the case either. We knew very early on, if you take the uh, spike protein, this is something the pharmaceutical companies, if they ever did it, 
and never reported it. But if we take um, the vaccine, the messenger RNA vaccine from 2021, before the Omicron, and we inject this into mice, uh, they get, I mean, visibly, if you look at the photographs of these mice on the autopsy, you don't even have to know medicine. You can tell the heart that's sick from the one that's normal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it causes widespread muscle cell degeneration in the heart, necrosis, acute inflammation, elevations of what they're called cardiac enzymes, uh, things inside the cell that are now leaking out and into the bloodstream. And the lining of the blood vessels are all damaged. And in acute inflammation. And if you get a second dose of the vax, inject the mice with a second dose after a period of time, now they start getting liver cell damage. Well, it's the spike protein, the coding for it, that is in the messenger RNA vaccine. So when you get a messenger RNA vaccine, the cells in your body start to produce actual spike protein. And this occurs not just at the injection site. Uh, there were lawsuits to get this released from Pfizer. They left it out of the U.S. application, and nobody bothered to ask them. It's called biodistribution uh, studies. But the vaccine was going all over the bodies. It was concentrating in the ovaries, in the liver, in the spleen. Um, and this is and this is data that we know from the from the Pfizer biodistribution oh. study. They knew well before the vaccines were released to the public. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they knew that it didn't stay in the deltoid muscle. They knew it went to essentially yes. every major organ system in a matter of hours. And they openly I yeah. actually listened to the most recent FDA advisory uh, meeting where they came to the conclusion that these things should be given to children. And the uh, vaccine manufacturers were asked specifically, do you know which tissues of the body, which organ systems will produce the spike protein? Do you know how much spike protein they'll produce? And do you know for how long? These seem like pretty, you know, pretty rudimentary questions, things you might want to know. And the answer was no. Uh, we, we don't know yeah. that yet. We haven't studied that yet. So the reality is yeah. people have been injected with something that has made their bodies into little mRNA spike protein factories um, yes. with no inherent off switch. Uh, and now, exactly. you know, we, we are seeing unprecedented numbers of adverse events. Just today, I read um, a report just today that the FAA has changed yeah. its surreptitiously, somewhat quietly, uh, changed the guidelines, the EKG guidelines for pilots. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, there's a new technique that's come out. And um, we're dealing with something called the, the, the PR period. And um, PR interval. And normally this is, it relates to how long the heartbeat takes to occur. It's a very orderly electrical system that makes the heartbeat the way it does. And PR interval, normally it's like uh, 1.2 to two milliseconds. Mm -hmm. 
Well, very quietly on the 24th of October of this year, the FDA sent out guidance for aviation medical examiners, the guys that give the pilots their physicals. And this had now been increased to three and above milliseconds, right. which right. is enough to accommodate cardiac injury. Um, there's a new test out called multifunction cardiogram, which is about five times more sensitive than a regular EKG. They did a study in post-vax in Puerto Rico. It uh, takes 10 minutes of recording and uh, internet. It links into an AI diagnostic software, but they're showing significant numbers of, of myocarditis uh, injuries post-vaccination. So uh, it appears that the FAA, it, it appears, excuse me, it appears that the FAA is tacitly acknowledging that there's yeah. cardiac injury in pilots and they can't, if they don't change the yeah. EKG guidelines, they'd have to ground well, half of did the, you see the today? pilots. Did you see today the business jet, the companies that own business jets, they're specifically asking for unvaccinated pilots. Wow. Okay. Have, have wow. they teased this out the from COVID not, effects? These we are know the for sure. Okay, this is my, this, my constant refrain is, you know, how do we tease it from COVID? This is it vaccine versus COVID? And by the way, interestingly, as you are talking about the PR intervals, I've seen a, some extraordinarily classic Mobitz 1 cases in some of my elderly yeah. patients lately, which was mm -hmm. sort yeah. of shocked me. I'm like, well, I haven't seen Mobitz 1 like this in a long time. Seen a couple of cases, oh. like real classic Mobitz 1. And uh, that's anyway, also but in the timeline. That's really interesting. That's but how do we tease it out from COVID itself? Epidemiologically, in 2019 and 2020, remember these huge spikes we were having in 2020? It was out of control. We didn't see any increase in myocarditis from background level. January, February, March, April, May is when the exponential increase in cases started, and this was when the vaccines were rolled out. So yeah, there's a yeah, there's a huge study now. Population. Technically, Bradford Hill criteria have been met. Now we start seeing even worse things with regards to hidden myocarditis. There was the Thai study that came out recently mm -hmm. where they looked at uh, adolescents and they looked at uh, after their second vaccine dose and they were seeing tachycardia and signs of myocarditis about uh, 2.1% about almost 30% of the children showed this, right. a mild myocarditis, like last a couple of days. 2.1% showed troponin-1 elevations. Now, this means actual heart muscle damage. There is no such thing as a mild myocarditis. Mm. These things heal by scarring. If there's been acute inflammation in the heart, you've had... Uh, heart muscle cell damage, this heals by scarring. And scar tissue doesn't conduct electrical impulses very well. Remember, the heart is a very carefully tuned electrical system. Further study that's come out recently 
was using uh, gadolinium delayed excretion. It's an MRI technique that visualizes the heart. And the more scar tissue that's in the walls of the heart, the longer it takes for this marker dye to leak out as an enhancement agent. So this type of a delayed thing, they were measuring this. And they were seeing that some of this damage was lasting for, for months. The hearts still weren't back to normal. No, I think What's our hidden? We have no idea what the hidden level is. Right, and, and I and I, I fear that we are, um, as someone who was out there at the very beginning, uh, as a voice of of concern about these vaccines, not only the, the rapidity with which they are being released, but also the paucity of safety data, uh, and the fact mm -hmm. that we weren't conducting a thoughtful risk benefit analysis with regard to who was exactly. going to receive them, uh, the inherent dangers in mRNA. We are now seeing, I believe, or I fear just the tip of the of the iceberg um, on these things. Um, I, I posted just the other day on social media a tweet that's gotten some um, interesting feedback saying um, that despite the that I was mercilessly derided and ridiculed and censored and slandered for saying the things I was saying, yeah. um, this is no time for a, a uh, I told you so victory lap. Um, this is, we need a call to arms. This is all hands on deck. We've got to come up with a way to fix this, to undo yeah. what's been done. So let's start talking about that you know clearly there are the same courageous uh creative critical thinking physicians who came up with the early treatment protocols with repurposed drugs are already working on ways to mitigate the damage from the vaccines by using some of those same drugs um but i don't think that's enough i believe and i'm not an mrna expert and i'm not a vaccinologist but if you can come up with a way to turn on, to, to give somebody mRNA to start creating a spike protein, surely there's got to be some way to turn it off. Um, I, I don't know what that is, uh, or to rid the body of these toxic spike proteins or to mitigate tissue damage. But it seems to me that where we need to be focusing right now as a scientific community, as physicians, is how the hell do we unring this bell? Because we are looking at a tsunami of, of illness, suffering, and premature death if we don't figure out a way to fix this. Yeah, basically. <laughs> what, what have you got? Embryonic stem cell therapy? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. What do, do you, you know, what would you do? Where, where would you go with this now to fix this? What about our military that we've forced to get vaccinated? They had no choice. Right. right. You know, we're short of pilots now. Whenever they make a new Top Gun movie, we're short of pilots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the you guys, know, guys I'm just thinking. They weren't, weren't going to we, take shot. We have a ready ready-made population that could serve as a study group with sort of unlimited resources and MRI, you know, functional, various kinds of MRI machines ready and available, which is the NFL. Yep. It seems to me that if you're a doctor at the NFL, you should be doing MRIs on every player and thinking and trying well, to figure this out, publishing on it, 
and you know saving right. these guys from more catastrophe yeah. and finding ways to mitigate it, treat it, deal with it, yeah. manage it, uh, and and then publish right. it. And that might be and the, that might be the way to to do this. Look how long it took to get uh, traumatic encephalopathy recognized. Right. Yeah, it's we true. Need to <laughs> develop true. a system where there is a free exchange of ideas yeah. without penalty. Yes. Well, you can't have this to that point, what 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 do you think needs to be done about the public health infrastructure? I mean, that that one is the great uh, sort of uh, excesses of the pandemic. What what do we got to do there? Well, I call it level six. You fire everyone six levels down, and you start again. Mm -hmm. It's the bottom rung anyway that knows how things work. That that. Uh, get things done hire from there for leaders uh oversight has got to be and this is one of the, the other thing that would be good about a office of technology assess an outside panelist coming in to work on a problem independent of politics answering only to the answer that they've they've come up with based on peer-reviewed studies. No conflicts of interest, no nonsense like this. We need to drastically overhaul the CDC, the parts of the NIH, and, and the FDA for certain. I mean, I was at the NIH for a couple of years. It is the most wonderful institution you could ever imagine. And then they politicized it. Right. It's well, outrageous. It's it's tarnished the whole institute. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, in the in the little bit of time we have left about accountability. Um, I really believe that we can't move forward. We can't fully uh, get over this until there is ultimately accountability. Um, we need to focus, as I said, on fixing this for the millions of people who took the vaccine because I think they are going to suffer from a lot of, uh, of unprecedented illness if we don't come up with some solutions. But at the same time, I think that there has to be accountability. And when I say accountability, I mean not just for people at the CDC and the FDA and a handful of public health officials. I mean politicians. I mean people in the mainstream media, people at big tech who were complicit in censoring voices, uh, certainly pharma, and as far as I'm concerned, every single physician out there, to all of those people, I would ask three questions. Mm -hmm. What did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do about it? Because yeah. there's going to be a reckoning. We need to have a reckoning. Twitter, you, in your Twitter, is a, Twitter is a very good start because we've already got the uh, emails. The C mm -hmm. They were taking instructions from the CDC and the FDA. Mm -hmm. We already have the emails. The, they're not allowed to do that. This is propaganda. Right, right. right. So, do you believe, you, you, you have very deep experience in the White House and, and at levels of government that I don't. Do you believe that we can get accountability? Do you think that we can, we, we will ultimately, you know, there are people calling for Nuremberg 2.0. Um, are we going to see the kind of accountability that, um, that really needs to happen with regard to, you know, as I said, who knew what, when? 
we have to have accountability to continue on as a republic. The drug companies have gotten so powerful. You know, you can't sue them, but they're not supposed to fudge the data either. <laughs> right. Okay. This, this needs to be some top-level investigations into what went on uh, by independent scientists. There's no more trust in medicine now. There's certainly no more trust in vaccines or anything like this. Um, no trust in the government. Right. There's pathogens out there 10 times worse than COVID-19. <laughs> no kidding. And they will arrive one day. Mm -hmm. We have to take this as serious as possible. It is a threat to national security. There needs to be a cabinet level position just for pandemic readiness and response, not just at ASPR. And mm -hmm. um, there's ways to do this where we can have a fantastic system, rapidly responsive. Uh, it's been outlined. We touch on some of this in the second book that's coming out, but you've got to restore trust in uh, our institutions. And um, there has to be permanent accountability rules. You are not allowed to do this. You can't do that. If you do this, any agreements we made are, are, are over. Uh, there's got to be a big house cleaning. Well, it's my understanding that if we are able to prove fraud, as you intimated, that, that the data was fudged or withheld, um, that critical safety data, for example, wasn't divulged to the public on the part of Big Pharma. It's my understanding that if that level of fraud is exposed, then the blanket liability protection they currently enjoy would go away. You would you would then be a, you would open the, the door to people having legal recourse against them. Well, I'm not a lawyer, but yes, that's my understanding. And um, sort of a, a, you know, there's indications Pfizer may have already been doing a two-step process to move their assets to another little company. <laughs> Some of the patents for their most profitable drugs. Pull these people in and... Uh, Let's investigate. That's all I can say. Uh, my goal is to help a, help the Office of Technology Assessment become reestablished and to work on uh, on a functional, rapid, reliable pandemic response plan. Well, that's we are we are. Um looking at trying to to renew people's faith uh, in the yeah. public health system, as well as Drew and I are doing everything we can to renew people's faith in the ability of physicians to have robust, vigorous, respectful debate, because that has been absolutely absent. Um, you know, you you yeah. are the you've you are deeply involved in uh, in pandemic response. Uh, and no, you know, you seem to be somewhat prescient um, when you wrote your first book about the failure of the pandemic response plan. 
What do you see coming down the pike? You said, you know, we know there are many pathogens out there, you know, lots of things that have the ability to cause pandemics, whether it's Ebola or drug resistant TB or whatever else. Do you foresee a, another pandemic coming soon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're due for it. Already? At least, so soon? Yeah. <laughs> we're getting at least one new novel infectious disease agent uh, every year, at least one. I touch on this, this concept of emerging infectious diseases in the first book, Three Seconds to Midnight. And it's somewhere around 1995, our population, global population, crossed a threshold. And now we're getting into viruses that for years were hidden deep in some jungle or forest and man's starting to come in and contact this. Um, COVID-19 didn't have to be this way. It has a very low death rate. Right. Uh, it was almost like a manufactured pandemic without reading too much into, into what I just said. Um, you wait till we get a 40% lethal uh, right. influenza virus. Yeah, that's, that's now a different the, now, the yeah. now the infrastructures of the city yeah. are at risk. Now food supply, gasoline, basic city infrastructures. Um, Simeon, uh, hemorrhagic fever is one of my worries and has been for years. They've now found a human case last year. Uh, it, it, mm. We had never recorded a jumping species before. And this is just one of many. Uh, uh, that has an 80% lethality in monkeys. So mm -hmm. with air travel, 24 hours away. Well, I've actually done this. I was in uh, Kuala Lumpur, I don't know, about 10 years ago or so, maybe longer. And I was in a live market, wet market. And 24 hours later, I was giving a, a lecture at, at a, a very large institution. So yeah. Well, well, certainly is, you know, when, when we whiteboard or uh, do, do modeling exercises, which I've uh, participated in with the military with regard to bioweapons, uh, certainly things like anthrax, the ability to spread something like that quickly, uh, something that can be aerosolized in airports, it takes very little because the number of vectors that uh, set off when you know you you infect a handful of people who subsequently get on a handful of planes and go to a handful of countries, and you very quickly escalate something to a global uh, pandemic. It can happen very, Dr. very quickly. Dr. Bakri, what did the Chinese do? The Chinese locked their own cities down internally. You couldn't travel yeah. from city to city, but they allowed over a million people to fly right. to international destinations. Exactly. E exactly. So it is Wuhan they, they set the off. world. Yes, indeed. Um, well, in the last little bit that we have here, what else do you would you like uh, people to know about this? What what haven't we asked about? Uh, you know, what's the 
the um, the thing that Dr. Drew and I have have failed to ask you about. There is some new technology coming up. One is called disease data mining. And they've done this 20 years ago and who the WHO kind of depend on it. But there's some new systems and algorithms that were proven in 2009 by a, a private disease surveillance company called Veritech. Now, they succumbed to the economic slump afterwards, but they were able to pick up the 2009 H1N1 influenza outbreak in Mexico before the CDC had any clue what was happening. So linking a disease surveillance system in with a response system. Where we lack is what's going on in the ground. We have a signal, we think something's going on in Wuhan. How do we get people over there and verify it ourselves? Not through the WHO, not through anyone else. We need exploitation teams that can do that. And they have to be, why don't link everything under like a mission control? Like when mm -hmm. we send something to the moon. Uh, you have your pandemic readiness people, your stockpile of drugs people, your surveillance system. We need to quit messing around and get a hospital surveillance system where we know exactly how many beds we have and what in what hospitals all over the country. That should have been done years ago. Then we need to go after some of these people and uh, like you said, hold them accountable. Doctors being threatened. I, uh, uh, when I was a yeah, kid, hospitals were friends of the community. Now I, they're now they're corporations. It's inexcusable. Yeah, it, it is inexcusable. And the and the one the one sort of keeper of the of the hen coop is is are the physicians. I mean, we are the only ones that yes. really have only and just and always right. only the best interest of the patient in mind. I want to get. We had some people, people asking questions. To, um, on, people need to talk to their Twitter. elected official. Okay. Yep. Uh, you need Here's to hold this, them uh, accountable. Uh, we, they allowed this. We we have a a friend of the show that's an infectious disease physician. He asked, "Did the two Lancet and New England Journal articles that were subsequently retracted because they were fabricated influence the retraction of the emergency use authorization?" Not which. Absolutely. They were the straw that broke the yeah. camel's back. We'd had the, the first thing that came out was the uh, toxic Brazilian chloroquine study, right. where they actually administered poison doses of chloroquine right. to the sickest patients on the ward. <laughs> and of course, they died. And right. the news got a hold of this because Rick Bright had not only refused to get an IND and gave us an EUA, but he went to the press and said, oh, you know, chloroquine is a very dangerous drug and I'm fighting to keep it away. He's still proud of it and thinks he did something. Well, wow. this is the evangelist the news again. went crazy over that. Right. Then there was the VA study where they took the sickest patients that were dying of cancer, AIDS, everything you can think of, heart failure, and they gave them hydroxychloroquine. Of course, they died. They were going to die anyway. And then the game was on, and the surgeon sell the fake Lancet paper. Uh, that was that, and uh, the recovery trial by the United Kingdom, 
they didn't even give any data. They just sent out a press right. release saying we're dropping the hydroxychloroquine arm. It doesn't work. And that was enough to that. Then it, everything happened. Interesting. Well, guys, we kind of have to wrap this up. And uh, Dr. Hatfield, we really appreciate your thoughts. Look forward to the next book. Kelly, any final thoughts? No, I just so appreciate it again. I so appreciate you being here to to bring your expertise. Uh, you bring a different, uh, you, had, you saw this through a different uh, lens, I think, because of not only your time in the White House, uh, but because of your expertise as a virologist and a bioweapons person. So I think you looked at it a little differently than some of the rest of us did. So I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us. We need this type of dialogue. Kelly, thank you uh, very much. And and, and, and I Drew? do think the the yes, sir. Nice. I I, nice I, I do think the 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 people that were present during these historic moments need to chronicle mm -hmm. what they observed and what happened because yes. that's the only way we're really going to prevent this from happening again. It's a, and I'm telling you, Absolutely. I you're you're I, I, again. I always walk away with headlines from these conversations and. To me, the headline is, you saw the evangelists at work. And the, the, right. your closing remarks here, you said they still believe that what they did was the right thing, shows how yeah. evangelically rigid they are. And yeah. that's how doctors should never be religious in right. their belief systems, ever. Right. You see never. somebody who believes they're a hero or have a religious sort of rigidity in their thinking, run, run, run. That's not, yeah. a, good, that's not a good fit. I agree. Zealotry. I've written yeah. some papers. It's on drstephenhatfield.com, all one word. I've written them so anybody can understand them. And you can read this. It, they're all referenced, and they should be linked, where if you click on a reference, it takes you right to the paper. You can read it yourself and make your own decisions about what happened. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you, you again. Hatfield. We'll talk Dr. soon. Stephen Hatfield. Com. And Kelly, as always, we appreciate you being here. Next week, we have uh, we have a few people. We're going to be a little bit later next week, right? We're going to be at 4 right. o'clock Pacific. Uh, and you have a couple of very exciting guests sort of on the hook, yes? I, I, I do. We're, we're, yes. Well, we're hoping we're going to be um, talking with Senator Ron Johnson in one of these coming weeks. I don't know if it's going to be next week or not. We've got Dr. Richard Urso, who is just a, uh, a spectacular physician and, and somebody who's been on the front line of this from the beginning, worked on uh, the early treatment protocols and is now working on, again, how to, how to, how to fix this debacle. So we've got, we've got, and then we have Dr. Ryan Cole coming back. Did you, did you, did I have Dr. Cariotti on with you ever? The psychiatrist yes, from yes. the bioethics? Yes. I feel like we, I feel like we should bring him back around because he's got a lot of legal stuff he's working on. It'd be interesting to get an update yeah. from him too. So maybe in a month or two, get him back around too. Yes. I, also, uh, Dr. Brian Tyson is, we're going to join us one of these uh, weeks soon. He's got some lawsuits against uh, all of the censorship, but again, was one of the frontline doctors treating people successfully during uh, the, the heyday of the pandemic itself. And now these are the creative, courageous, critical thinking that we're hoping are going to help us figure out a fix to this. How can we mitigate the damage and the adverse events that uh, people are suffering from these injections? 
And so uh, we are we will not be having a show tomorrow since we had a show on Monday. And I believe we will be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week. There may be caller shows afoot. Um, and again, as I always tell people, if you have suggestions who you'd like to speak to, do send it to contact at drdrew.com. Susan looks at all those. Uh, and Kelly, thank you so much. And I'll see you next Wednesday. Sounds great. See you for Wednesday. Everybody, for everybody else, we will see you on Tuesday at 3 o'clock, then Wednesday at 4 o'clock Pacific time. And Caleb, thank you. Any questions from your uh, vantage point? Uh, no, not over here. I'm really excited for the next shows. Okay. Fair enough. We'll see you next time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Oh.